If you've got your Bibles, please grab them and make your way to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, continuing on in our study through uh, this six-chapter little book. And if you, like, when I say grab your Bibles, I, I really mean that. So if you have a Bible with you, grab it and get it out, get it open. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a black hardback one around you somewhere. So please grab that and open it up uh, to page 991 in those black hardback ones. Um, and just helps you to engage, like on your own with the scripture, look at it, see it yourself. All right. And so while you're getting there and just to kind of show my versatility, because I'll quote and I'll reference Lecrae and Flame and Tadashi and all these folks. All right. Just show my versatility from that this morning. I'm going to begin with Jerry Clower. All right. So got a little versatility. All right. Yeah, I got some hollering going on. So. There we go. So Jerry Clower, if you don't know, and I know this is down the dividing line. If you're 40 and over, you know who I'm talking about. If you're 40 and younger, you have no clue. So let me educate you a little bit. Jerry Clower was a grand old Opry star. He was kind of a comedian, but more than a comedian, he was more of a storyteller. And he told stories. They were usually somewhat humorous. If you are my wife, they're not humorous at all. But Growing up in Pine Log, I found them extremely humorous because I could relate. They're all about life in the rural South, in particular in Southwest Mississippi. And so he tells these stories of what life was like, and they're always filled with, um, you know, kind of a made-up character that are cousins of his or family of his with Uncle Bercy and all these Ledbetter kids that are crazy. And so he tells one story about this uh, one of the Ledbetter kids named Claude and how Claude was catching all these fish and nobody else could catch any fish. And so the game warden heard about how he was catching all these fish and nobody else in town could catch fish. He would drive up into town with just a pickup truck loaded down with catfish. And so the game warden figured there's got to be something going on. So I'm going to go fishing with Claude and find out what's going on. So he goes fishing with Claude, and they get up, and they go out in the river, and they're on the boat, and he's like, all right, Claude, I want to see how you're catching all these fish when nobody else can catch any. And so Claude reaches underneath the seat of, uh, you know, the boat seat and pulls out a great big stick of dynamite and lights the dynamite on, on fire and lets it go down to where there's not a whole lot left and throws it out in the water. Boom! And all the catfish, you know, they come belly up, come turning up. And so he's just grabbing them and throwing them in the boat. And, 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 and the game warden's like, you idiot, you can't do this. Don't you know this is against the law? Now, meanwhile, Claude's already lit another stick of dynamite and it's going, shh, hands it to the game warden. The game warden, you can't do this. This is against the law. And he's like, are you going to stand there and argue or fish? <laughs> and so whether the game warden knew it, or not, he was going to go fishing that day, whether he knew it or not. And in our lives, whether we know it or not, we are engaged in a spiritual war. Whether we realize it or not, we are. We're engaged in a spiritual war. I got distracted there because I think that's my kid. But whether we realize it or not, we're engaged in this spiritual war. There's an invisible war that's going on between the forces of God and between the forces of Satan. And we can stand around, we don't want to be the game board, and we can stand around and we can become a casualty of that war. We could shipwreck our faith, as Lee read just a minute ago, or we can fight. 
for the glory of God and the good of our own souls and those around us and the next generation who does not yet know the gospel and they need it to be preserved, all right, we can fight. And that's the call that, that Paul gives to Timothy throughout the whole book. I mean, that's the theme of the book. A good fight. And we're going to see that, like, chapter 6, this is an all-encompassing fight. Because you see this theme called out all over the place. But today, in particular, we see it really highlighted with this call to wage the good warfare. To wage the good warfare. And so this morning, I just want to kind of be really simple and, and ask three questions as it relates to this call of waging the good warfare. First of all, what is the good warfare? So we'll, we'll look at that. And then secondly, how do we wage this good warfare? And then third, what happens if we don't? What happens if we don't wage the good warfare? And so that's what we're going to try to answer. Those are the notes in your uh, sermon guide that, that are in there. You know, it's before you. And so let's look at that first one. What is the good warfare? So verse 18, look at it with me. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. These are like spiritual gifts that were placed on him when the laying on of hands happened, when, you know, when he was becoming a, uh, an elder, a pastor of the gospel. That by them you may wage the good warfare. And so again, that's the first question we've got to ask. What, what is the good warfare? Okay, what is it? Because again, we are engaged, whether we realize it or not, 100% of the time, we are engaged in spiritual warfare all the time. And while fighting the good fight, as we'll see in chapter 6, is all-encompassing, the specific war that Paul has in mind here in chapter 1 is a war for truth. It's a war for right doctrine. It's a war for sound theology. I mean, verse 3, previously in the chapter, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so this whole thing that Paul is warring on here in this chapter is a warfare, all right? The good warfare, the the good war is for sound doctrine. Sound theology. And it's a war, not a battle which means it's a long-term campaign. It's not something that's going to be over quick. It's going to continue on until Jesus comes again. Until that time, Satan will continue to attack theology. He will continue to attack truth. He will continue to try to undermine it, distort it. I mean, this is Satan's tactic. This is how he rolls from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say... You can't eat that fruit. Distortion, undermining, challenging. This is how he works. And so as it comes to sound doctrine, this war we're to wage, we can't take sound doctrine for granted. Because ever since the fall of man, when Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve believed the lie of Satan, ever since that time, the disposition of the human heart is to drift from right doctrine, from sound theology. Someone's like, I don't know about all that, Joe. This is always drifting. We always drift. Well, let me just give you a little survey. 
before Moses even gets down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the people are worshiping a golden calf. A couple decades later, Joshua has to challenge them. Are you going to serve the Lord God or are you going to serve false gods? By the time we get to Elijah, there are 450 prophets of Baal and only one prophet of the one true God. When we get into the New Testament, Jesus is constantly railing on the Pharisees because they are teaching wrongly. It's false doctrine. They drifted away. Every single letter in the New Testament is concerned with sound doctrine and combating false teachers. Even the shortest of ones. Jude says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If we want to just roll, I mean, we can keep going into the last two millennia. In the first several centuries, the church had to defend the deity of Christ, the trinity, the humanity of Christ, the sovereignty of God. And out of all these things, we get the great councils and creeds of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon. Once you get into the Middle Ages, the way of salvation was attacked. And so God slowly began rolling out um, pre-reformers that finally blossomed in 1517 with Luther, followed by Calvin and Zwingli, over to the English Reformation, John Knox in Scotland, down to the 19th and 20th century with combating theological liberalism and a battle for the Bible, down to today, the pro prosperity gospel, and America's primary religion of humanistic secularism, whose tentacles of consumerism and gross individualism are wrapped around the church. And so there's never been a time where God's people were not in danger of falling into error. And so Paul's charge rings crystal clear, just as crystal clear today as it did then. We've got to wage this good warfare and contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because truth matters. Doctrine matters. Because false doctrine damns. If you get it wrong, you lose the faith. We're always just one generation away from losing the gospel. And so we've got to wage the good warfare. And God is always going to preserve a remnant. There's no danger here. He will build His church, but He can build it with us and through us, or He can build it through someone else. And so we're called to wage this good warfare. The problem is that sometimes we don't wage a good warfare Christians and churches sometimes wage a bad warfare. Sometimes we wage a bad warfare because we'll confuse those things that are central to the faith with those that aren't. Sometimes even Christians all over the world will attach their culture to the gospel, their country to the gospel, their politics to the gospel when that's not central at all. But even if we just stick with doctrine, and we don't attach things outside of doctrine, sometimes we still wind up waging the bad warfare because we will confuse central doctrines with ones that aren't as central. And so a lot of times, if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me talk about open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. Closed-handed issues are these non-debatables. You cannot deny these and be a Christian. Things like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, 
the humanity of Christ, the resurrection, the second coming, monotheism, right? I mean, we could keep going. There's tons of these. Close-handed, non-debatable. But then you've got open-handed issues. What's the exact timeline of the end times going to look like? How old is the world? What is the nature of Noah's flood? All these things we can disagree on a little bit. They're not core. These are. And so we've got to be really careful that we do not confuse these two. We've got to be really careful that we do not confuse closed-handed issues with open-handed issues. Therefore, they're up for debate. And we need to be also careful that we don't take open-handed issues and close them as if these are just as core and as important as, as these over here that are actually closed. We've got to be very careful that we do not confuse those two. And so just pastor, if you're ever wondering, is this an open-handed issue? Is this a closed-handed issue? Ask one of your elders. They'd be glad to talk with you about that and help you out. But in our day, if I just had to pick one, like, if I just had to pick one core thing that we need to defend, that one core doctrinal thing that we must contend for is the inerrancy of the Bible. Because if the Bible is God's Word, if it is what He said to us, then it is what it is. It's not up for debate. He's the King. He's the author. He's the Creator. He's in control. He spoke. He rules. We can't argue. But if the Bible is just a human document filled with maybe some good spiritual advice, but not actually true, within it's open to interpretations and the complete disregarding of portions. And so then you can take the Bible and make it say whatever you want it to say. Which is exactly what the false teachers were doing in Ephesus. Look at verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so Paul says we have to wage a good warfare. We must fight to preserve right theology. We must fight for truth because we're prone to drift. And this fight is not against people outside. It's pe inside. It's always corruption that grows up from the inside. So we must constantly be warring on our own hearts and on our own idolatries coming into play in our lives. But this call to wage this war, it doesn't really mean anything, doesn't really make any difference. And in actuality, we can't fight to wage this good warfare for right doctrine if we don't know right doctrine. If we don't know the Bible. And so the first part of fighting, okay, number two, how do we wage the good warfare? Two parts on that. The first part is that we have to know it. We have to know what good doctrine is. We have to know what the faith is. We have to know what the Bible teaches. And so look at verse 18b, the, the end of it again. He says, wage the good warfare. And then here come our two like ways that we do it. Holding faith and a good conscience. Okay, we have to hold on to the faith and we have to hold on to a good conscience. So let's take faith first. 
If we don't know the faith, we don't know doctrine, if we don't know the essentials, how can you hold on to it? It's easy to lose. You don't know it. Years ago, there was a farmer who described his Christian experience by saying, well, I'm not making any real progress, but I'm well established. One spring, he was out you know, trying to remove some logs and they had loaded all these logs up on his wagon and he was trying to pull them out and it had been just as rainy as it's been here lately and so he got stuck in the mud up to the axles of the wagon. And so he can't get it out. He's, I mean, just stuck as stuck can be. Finally, he just climbs up on top of the logs. And he's just kind of looking around, head in his hands. And a friend of his comes by on a wagon. And this friend had never really been comfortable with the way the farmer characterized his testimony. And so this guy comes riding up. He says, well, Brother Jones, I can see you're not making much progress, but you're well established. If we are going to be soldiers in Christ's army, if we are going to be lovers of Christ, lovers of God, followers of Him, we can't just stay static. In fact, you can't stay static. You're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. And the call is to make progress, grow in Christ. And this call to grow in Christ is, yes, so we can wage the good warfare, absolutely, but it's also for your own joy, your own peace, because the Word of God is a balm for the soul. It's good news in the midst of a world that's filled with bad news. It brims with hope. Mercies are new every morning. And in it, you have the Creator God, Sovereign, Great I Am that we sang about, speaking directly to you and saying, because I love you, I created the world, I know how it works best, go this way, don't go that way. That will wind up being bad for you. It may feel good, may make you, you know, may feel nice, kind of like sugar does when you eat it, but it's going to go bad for you. And so he's never trying to take from us when he gives us commands. He's trying to lead us to joy. And so for your own joy, follow Christ. But to follow Christ, you have to know Christ and you have to know his word. And so just think with me for a second. If you love God while knowing just a little bit about him, do you think you'll suddenly like love him less by knowing more about him? Absolutely not. The more you know of God, the more you realize how worthy He is of all praise and adoration and glory. There's a direct correlation between the depth of our knowledge of God and the depth of our worship of God. I did not say authenticity. You can know very little and worship God just as authentically as someone, as anybody. But the depth of our worship is directly proportional to our knowledge. The more you know of Him, the more you know Him, the deeper your worship affections will be. The stronger your faith will be. Not because you're awesome, but because the Holy Spirit's working in your heart by His good pleasure for your good. And so I cannot urge you enough 
about the necessity of knowing the Word of God. I cannot urge that heavy enough. And so begin, you know, barring unforeseen circumstances and the occasional vacation and just whatever, begin by being here weekly. This is where we read the Word, pray the Word, sing the Word, preach the Word, hear the Word, and see the Word when we do uh, baptism and communion. Those are displays of the Word. So be here. We, we gather together to worship God and then fight for each other's joy in knowing Him. And so don't miss this time for things that ten years from now will not matter. You build building blocks week after week after week after week after week after week, year after year, decade after decade. Be here for that. But it's not enough just to be here for that. You need to be in the Word yourself. And so start by studying one book. Pick one book of the Bible. Maybe Colossians. Four chapters. Chock full of great stuff because all of it is. And so just get to know that Bible. Know its, that, that book. Know its divisions. Know its structure. Know its unity. Study it with a pen and paper pointing out the verbs. It's calling me to do this. This is a command here. This is a describer. Like Study it. Pen and paper. Get, get into the Word. Alright? Whatever it is, just get in it. Get in a group. Get in a Sunday school class. Open up your Bible and read it. And as you read it, not like a newspaper, as you read it, ask the Holy Spirit to allow it to read you. So you might be changed. Trying to fight a war without ammo is a the most ridiculous idea you could ever come up with. And yet all of us are engaged in this spiritual war. And some of us are going into it without ammo because we don't open our Bibles. This is the ammo of the Holy Spirit. And so to wage the good warfare, you have to hold on to the objective deposit of the faith. Holding faith there in verse 19. Once for all delivered to the saints. Alright, can't defend what you don't know. But we also have to hold on to the subjective, so we got objective, now we're subjective treasure of a good conscience. And so look at verse 19 again, end of verse 18. Wage the good warfare how? Holding faith and a good conscience. And so, think with me now. Since a good conscience comes from living a good life, Paul is telling Timothy here and us that the Christian life is just as important as the Christian faith. In other words, the defense of sound doctrine is a matter not only of right belief, but also of right behavior. And so, for example, someone says, I believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of the Almighty God given to His people. Well, do you read it? Because if it's Almighty God who's given it to you, that's kind of a big deal. Do you seek to live it? Do you repent where you err? And ask the Holy Spirit to help you? 
Well, if not, are you sure you actually believe what you said at the beginning? You go back to that formula that Mark Lederbach gave me in family and uh, marriage. I don't know, 101, I don't know what it's called, at, at, in seminary. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. And so if you've ever had chemistry or you've just ever seen Water Boy, you know that water is composed of H2O, right? High quality H2O, right? Two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. So to, to be water, that's what you have to have. If one of those hydrogen atoms goes away, you no longer have water. If one of those oxygen atoms goes away, you no longer have water. You have to have all of them together. And it's the same way if a Christian loses faith, right, holding faith and a good conscience, loses faith or conscience, he or she is no longer living as a Christian. These things go together. And so think about it with me, how these things go together. If, if one is off, it's going to throw the other off. And so like if you have false doctrine, that's going to lead automatically to false practice, false action, false behavior. Wrong views about God's Word invariably lead to wrong practices. But the reverse is also true. A bad conscience can lead to bad doctrine. So, in other words, the relationship between wrong belief and wrong behavior is a two-way street. Wrong belief will lead to wrong behavior. But wrong behavior, because a lot of times we want to justify our actions, will start to lead us to wrong belief. And as sinners, we're prone to these. And we have to fight. And so let me just ask you some questions. Do you have a wrong behavior or thought pattern or whatever it might be that in your attempts to justify that behavior is leading you to maybe begin adopting wrong beliefs contrary to Scripture? Be careful. Be very careful, friend. Don't conform your belief to your errant behavior. Conform your errant behavior to what Christ has called us to do. Wage the good warfare. Make war on your sin. Follow Christ. Live it out. John Stott put it like this. Thus belief and behavior, conviction and conscience, the intellectual and the moral, are closely linked. This is because God's truth contains ethical demands. As Jesus said, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out or know whether my teaching comes from God. John 7.17 in other words, doing is the key to discovering. Obedience, the key to having assurance. By contrast, it is when people are determined to live in unrighteousness that they suppress the truth. So if we disregard the voice of conscience, 
allowing sin to remain unconfessed and unforsaken, our faith will not long survive. Anybody whose conscience has been so manipulated as to be rendered insensitive is in a very dangerous condition, wide open to the deception of the devil. The reformer John Calvin put it much more succinctly. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. We will try to justify things and we will come up with all kinds of crazy things. And so we must wed doctrinal orthodoxy with holistic orthopraxy. What that means is our beliefs must drive our practice. We must live out what God says. To do otherwise makes us hypocrites. It makes us Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs, Matthew 23. And so the faith is not simply to be defended. It's to be lived. And so those of you who are Christians in here, are you living it? Are you pursuing a holy life? Are you striving? Are you reading the Word? Are you fighting your own sin or just pointing out the sins of others? Are you loving your neighbor? Maybe for others, the question needs to be asked, are you drifting from the clear teaching of the Bible because of a behavior you want to justify or accept as normative? As we are called to wage the good warfare by holding firmly to the true faith, not swerving from it, sound doctrine, and by firmly holding on to a good conscience by pursuing ever-increasingly holy lives. And we're not there. Listen, God's not... I mean, Christ is for us. He gave His, he gave his life for us. So there's forgiveness. There's redemption. But there's a push. Wage of good warfare. Not a suggestion. Command. And so we've answered this question of what is it? We've answered this question of, of how. All right, How do you wage it? Holding faith and a good conscience. Now let's answer that question of what if we don't? What if we don't wage the good warfare? That's number three in your notes. What if we don't wage it? Let's read the whole thing again. It's only three verses. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. I don't like that translation, the ESV. It's really the faith, all other translations. I mean, you can see it as possessive, but he's talking about the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's a lot in that. So let's think 
through it. The big thing here is what Paul is pointing out is he's saying here that if we don't wage the good warfare, if we don't do that, we can shipwreck, again, not literally their faith, but the faith. This is the point that Paul is getting at. Without knowing the faith, without knowing the gospel, if you don't know it, we can lose it. And Paul's not talking about personal salvation. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. Biblically, that's impossible. And logically, it's impossible. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to get it. God gave it to you. It's a gift. So if God gave it, you can't ungive it. You can't lose it. You didn't do anything to earn it in the first place. God gave it to you. You can't lose what you did not earn. So a true believer cannot lose their salvation. But you can be deceived that you ever had it in the first place. And oftentimes, your deception can be seen in either drifting in your belief or in your behavior, exactly what we've been talking about. By rejecting this, holding faith in a good conscience, Hymenaeus and Alexander made a shipwreck of the faith. All right, so they've drifted in their belief. Like we know Hymenaeus went overboard with eschatology. Second Timothy chapter two, verse seventeen, he talks about how the resurrection of the dead—that's a future event. He's saying it's already happened and we're living in the glorified state. If that's true, that was a bad deal. And so he's erred in his belief. Alexander, maybe he was right along with Hymenaeus. We're not 100% sure. We don't know that. But what we do know is that they've been placed under church discipline. That's what handed over to Satan means. It's the exact same phrase we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with the guy who's excommunicated for having incest with his stepmom. And so this phrase, handed over to Satan, comes from the idea that since the church is the dwelling place of God, it follows then that to be ejected from the church is to be sent back into the world, the habitat of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 or 2. And so in this action of removing them from membership, Paul is actually doing the most loving thing that he can do for Hymenaeus and Alexander. Because he's telling them the truth. He's trying to get them to wake up that their soul is in danger. That's what church discipline is all about. It's not this mean, ha ha, sinner, we give it to you. That's not what it's about at all. If that's the case, every single one of us needs to be under church discipline all the time. We're sinners. But what church discipline is about is a loving call that the church is concerned about you, brother. 
It's concerned about you, sister, that though we cannot peer into your heart and look in there and see, you know, if you truly are a believer or not, on the outside looking in, we don't know that we can any longer affirm that you are in fact a Christian because you are living in ways that are absolutely contradictory to that. And so we can't declare that you're not a believer, but I don't know that I can affirm that either. And that's what church discipline is saying. I don't know if we can affirm this anymore. Please change. Please repent. Please come back. And when that happens, we as a church, in love and concern for one another, begin a process of church discipline that most of the time the whole church will never, ever, 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 ever hear about because people repent. They come back. And so Jesus describes this process in Matthew chapter 18. I'll read it to you, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. One person to one person. 90% of things are solved there. Talk to one another, folks. Use this in your own family. Husband and wife, if you're married, a husband and wife, you bicker, you fight, you bicker, you fight, you bicker, you fight. You never talk. It's never going to get solved. You're going to sweep it up underneath the rug. and that, There's going to be a cloud that builds up underneath that rug. And then every time you get in a fight, stomp, stuff goes everywhere. And it's, it's on like Donkey Kong again. Talk. Talk to one another. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. Gaining your brother. Gaining your sister. That's the goal. Reconciliation. Restoration. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, step two, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this isn't like you just go one time and then you go get some other people and y'all go one time. This is over and over and over and over and over. Long, 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 long drawn out process seeking to gain your brother. After all that's gone on for a long time, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This would be like the, if you're at the membership meeting, like the pastoral care list. Hey, this is going on a little bit. We're concerned about person Y. Pray for them. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And how do you treat Gentiles and tax collectors? You evangelize them. You're kind to them but they're not a brother and sister in Christ. You love them. You implore them to believe the gospel. And so when Jesus gives us these things, I don't believe a Gentile and a tax collector, is he being harsh? It's Jesus. When Paul says, hand him over to Satan, is he being severe? No. What he's doing is he is loving the habitual, unrepentant sinner. Because that's the category. Habitual, unrepentant. If you're repentant, this is a non-starter. You're repentant. Habitual, 
unrepentant. He's loving that habitual, unrepentant sinner enough to tell them you don't appear to actually believe. Maybe you do. Repent. Turn back. He's loving that person. He's telling them the truth. He's concerned for their soul. In our culture today, like, yes, spiritual abuse can happen when you have a, a position of authority like that. But in our culture, it's almost the exact opposite. How dare you tell me that I might not, that I might be a sinner? The church is here to talk to one another. Not to cast stones, but to talk to one another, to push one another. For the glory of God. So he's loving this habitual, unrepentant sinner. He's also loving the lost world enough so that they will see what a true Christian is to look like and won't be blurred by habitual sin. Oh, that person. That's what a Christian is. Okay, well, I'm good. I mean, that guy does. I'm good. He also is loving the church enough to help protect it from the leaven of sin that seeks to make habitual sin look safe fine and acceptable, and he loves Jesus enough to obey him in the easy things and the hard things. Matthew 18 is Jesus talking. It's his command. This isn't man's idea. This is God's idea. And so again, church discipline is all motivated by love of all these groups with the goal of repentance and restoration, which is Paul's goal for Hymenaeus and Alexander here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. That if they are in fact true believers who've just erred a bit by turning them over to Satan, all right, excommunicating them from the church, removing them from membership, that they would wake up, that being put out of the church would, would open their eyes and realize, man, we've, we, we've erred. We need to repent and be restored. And that if they are not in fact believers, that by being put out of the church, they would realize I'm not, in fact, a believer. And they would repent and believe the gospel and be redeemed and saved and united with the church. And so waging good warfare is tough. But war is tough. But we've been called to wage to wage a good warfare, not a bad one. Picking our fights rightly. And we wage it by holding faith. Right? Sound doctrine. Hang on to it. And by holding a good conscience. We live it, not just defend it. This is what Paul did. This is what Timothy did. This is the way that they fought. This is the way that Luther fought. This is the way that Calvin fought. This is the way that John Knox fought. And this is the way that we are called to fight as well. Wage a good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience. May we be a people who does that. Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy to be called your children, but you have redeemed us in Christ. You have lavished grace upon us with more to follow. You do not cast us out when we behave or perform poorly. You brush us off like children who are learning to walk 
and say, I love you, child. Let's try again. Follow me. And so, Father, if we in here are believers in Christ, and we're realizing in this day that you have, that, that we have failed to hold fast to the faith, to know it, or to hold a good conscience, to live it, Father, I pray that you would wash us afresh with your forgiving grace, your love, your mercy. And we would know that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for all of our sins. And Father, if there's a person in here this morning, who does not know you, I pray, Father, that today would be the day of salvation. That they would recognize their need of you, that you are indeed holy. And you call us to a holy life that we in ourselves cannot live, will not live. And so you sent Christ to live it for us. And all the wrath and anger against sin that we deserve, Christ paid it for us and he rose again in victory guaranteeing our forgiveness and that all we have to do is receive it it's a gift that you hold out you just take hold and so father I pray that you would cause someone to take hold today We each have individual needs. We each have individual hurts. We each have individual things that we are fighting. And we pray that your grace and mercy would overflow to meet those. And that we would be reminded that you are good. When it's easy. When it's hard. When it's confusing. And when it's downright devastating. You remain Good. You remain true. Help us to wage a good warfare to the day Christ comes. And with a word, it is finished. Ends this whole thing and ushers us into the new heavens and the new earth. The war is over. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.